0: Part two of the ambidextrous organization is brought to you by Gate One Consulting with offices in Dublin, London and New York. Gate One is a business transformation consultancy who partner with some of the world's leading organizations to deliver meaningful change. To find out more about how Gate One Consulting can help you. You can find them at gateoneconsulting.com. Our guest today has taught at UC Berkeley, UCLA, Columbia, the Harvard Business School and Stanford. He has published hundreds of papers and six books. If none of that is enough. He's also an Irishman. We welcome the co author of lead and disrupt one and two over my shoulder there, and winning through innovation over the other shoulder over there, and host of a an, an load more titles that I w- would love to get through in the future. Charles O'Reilly, the third, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Aiden. It's a it's a great pleasure to be here.
0: We are in for such a treat today because we're going to go beyond the books. So those of you who have followed Charles and Michael's work, we are going into unknown territory for you, uncharted territory. Because Charles sent me three great case studies last night. I had thought I was all prepared, and then I had to take the day off to read those case studies. They are Microsoft, DeVita. An AGC, a company formerly known as Asahi Glass, beautiful. But I thought we'd start with your origins because you are you started off in the army and you understand culture firsthand there. So maybe we'll start with that, Charles. I'd love you to share your story.
1: Sure, sure. So I grew up in a, in a, uh, my father was uh, an army officer. And so we grew up (coughs) on army posts around the world. And that's what I wanted to do. So I went into the army and I spent some time in some of the, uh, in the paratroops in the 101st Airborne Division. And when I got out of the military, uh, I really didn't know what to do. And so I decided to get an MBA. When I was in the MBA program, I had the the opportunity to work with uh, a then young assistant professor and realized that you could study this stuff. You could study leadership. You could study innovation. And so essentially sort of finished the MBA, went into the doctoral program. So a lot of my research, and then I met Michael when we were both doctoral students. I gave a talk back at, uh, he was a student at MIT. I was a student at Berkeley, and I gave a talk back at uh, at uh, MIT. And we were both doing research, kind of related research on uh, networks, communication networks. And so that, that started our, uh, our collaboration. You know, the origins of the Winning Through Innovation that Mike has talked a bit about, Mike and I were working with, teaching, writing cases on a set of companies that we thought were great companies. There are companies that <clears throat> most of the, you listening to this podcast would never have heard of because it was a long time ago, but we thought they were great companies and uh, several of them failed. And it was a shock to us. I mean, wh- we thought they had great people, they had good market position, they had g- good technology. And that led us to think about this notion about why why do big organizations sometimes get stuck? Why do they get disrupted by smaller companies? And that led to, you know, the 40 plus year collaboration that Mike and, uh, and friendship that Mike and I have had, where we looked initially if with winning through innovation, we looked at kind of why is it that organizations get stuck? What's the sources of inertia? And a big part of that, which we'll come back to momentarily, is is culture. In doing the winning through innovation, we realized that there were some companies that in the face of change were able to to adapt, to to compete in whatever their big existing markets were, but also explore into the future. That led to Lead and Disrupt. In doing Lead and Disrupt, the first edition, uh, that gave us an opportunity to spend some time in Europe and Japan talking to leaders of companies. Uh, And one of the things we realized in, in doing that was that Sometimes leaders weren't thinking, we thought, very clearly about uh, innovation. Uh, Let me give you an example. We were in Japan, and there was a company that, uh, a big electronics company that you would all know, that had spent four years investing in design thinking, which is, of course, a great methodology for coming up with new ideas. And they were very proud of that. And they actually um, told me that they had generated 400 ideas for uh, new products and services. And I I pushed them a little bit and I said, well, how many of those have you actually gotten into the market? Two. That that is, they were great at ideation, but they really didn't know how to incubate. And so we came up with this notion of ideation, incubation, and scaling. Ideation is about coming up with new ideas and there are disciplines for that, design thinking, sort of uh, open source innovation, hackathons, corporate venture capital. There are a bunch of ways of doing that. Incubation is different. Incubation is taking ideas <clears throat> and figuring out which of those ideas, <clears throat> you know, might new customers might be willing to pay for and grow into a new business. That's a uh, lean launch pad. That's uh, a business model canvas. The third discipline is scaling. And and in a way, that's the most difficult. That is, how do you you take assets and capabilities from existing uh, businesses, oftentimes that are profitable, although declining, and move them into what could be lower margin, but growth oriented businesses? So we were with a company in Germany, an automobile company. They were great at ideation. They were great at incubation. They were terrible at scaling. That is, they were run by internal combustion engineers who were perfectly willing to let them do these experiments in Berlin and Munich. But when the time came to say, look, can we take people and money away from our existing internal combustion engine business and actually grow these businesses, they weren't having any of it. So that led us to uh, the second edition of Lead and Disrupt. In doing that and working with Andy Bins, who you'll meet later, uh, it became clear to us that there were individuals in organizations that were able to drive innovation, to be entrepreneurial within existing organizations. And that led us to uh, the third book, which is Corporate Explorer. So Lead and Disrupt is kind of a top-down story. How do you design organizations that can compete in existing and growth businesses? Corporate Explorer is a bottom-up story. It's how to, as an, as a, as an individual in an organization, how do you drive uh, innovation? So that's, that, that's, the, that's the kind of uh, landscape. Now, the way culture fits into that was that, so I came out of some strong culture organizations. And, you know, strong culture, as you know, can be a very positive thing. And it can also be a very negative thing. It can be a huge source of inertia. And so culture has always been a part of the story. You you spoke with Mike about the congruence model, you know, the the hardware and the software. And and clearly, culture is the software. It is the way we think about it. It is a social control system. That, That is the only way you get big organizations with large numbers of people coordinated is you have to put in formal control systems. We put in budgeting systems, performance management systems, product development systems, you know, financial. We don't have any problem with that. You have to have them if you're going to coordinate large numbers of people. That's what culture is. Culture is a social control system. If I come to work in an organization, it's very important for me to figure out how I need to fit in what do I need to how do I need to behave to be seen as a good person? Okay. And I'll do that. I'll talk to people, I'll see who's getting promoted, I'll listen to what my leaders say. So culture is a social control system. And the question then is: is that social control system going to help you execute your strategy? And here's the tension. The tension is that the culture that's required in big core businesses, exploit businesses, is typically around efficiency, incremental improvement, driving uh, costs out, the culture that makes you successful is different from the culture that you need if you're going to succeed in a more uh, exploratory business where it's really about initiative, trying things, (coughs) failing fast, all those things. So that's culture. Culture kind of is is the kind of software that can either help you or hurt you as you try to uh, explore and exploit.
0: Beautiful, beautifully articulated, man, and you did a great job encapsulating years of research and all those books as well. But I'd love to go right back to winning because winning through innovation. Because many, many managers feel like the challenges they face are new; uh, their predecessors never sh- face such changing markets, shifting markets, et cetera, et cetera. And you say, in winning through innovation, they are both right and wrong. They are right in the, in the fact that markets and technologies are changing faster than ever before. But the fundamental dynamics of these changes are largely the same across industries, countries and time. I'd love you to share an example of that, which is absolutely love. And this goes almost back to your army origins, but it was in the Navy. And what I really want to our audience to listen to here is: what do you do when things are going well? Because how do you instill an idea of reinvigorating and renewing the organization when there doesn't feel like there's a need to do so? And you share in winning through innovation, the brilliant story of Scott and Sims.
1: Yeah. So, so I think you're right. You know, managers often look at their problem and say, well, my problem is unique. I'm in in a different industry, I'm in a different geography, whatever. But you're right. <clears throat> These problems, especially when you have the luxury that we do as academics who've been around a long time, to see lots of organizations around the world across industries. And, you know, there obviously there are differences, but fundamentally the problems are, are the same. So let's go back to the 1890s. This is the story that you're, you you talked about. Um there was uh, <clears throat> an economic historian named Elting Morrison, and Morrison was a, primarily a military historian, and he wrote about the Navy, and he wrote about the Navy in the 1890s, and he documented the following story. So, in the 1890s, the U.S. Navy was uh, one, probably one of the more successful navies in the world. There had just been, uh, the, you know, the Spanish-American War, the Navy, the U.S. Navy had participated in that, had been a big part of the, of winning that. So the, the Navy in the 1890s was successful. In the 1890s, uh, gunnery, that is the way you, the way you were able to, uh, aim and shoot guns, uh, was pretty crude. The guns were bolted to the deck. The ships would pitch and roll. And so guns were not very accurate and El- and Morrison describes how there was a young lieutenant, a guy named Sims, who was stationed in the South China Sea, and he watched a British officer, an Admiral Scott, who had figured out that you could improve the accuracy of these guns if you just put some gears on them and so and a, and a telescopic sight, so that as the ship pitched and rolled, you could adjust. And it improved the accuracy uh, significantly. And Sims thought this was a brilliant idea. So he came back to the U. Uh, he wrote some reports. He got gathered some data. He sent it to the Navy. Nothing happened. And, you know, so he wrote some more reports. He got a little more ir- irritated. Uh, you know, he got, he said, well, I'll collect some more data. So he collected some more data. Nothing happened. So finally, he... he uh, uh, he caused a bi- enough of a stink that the Navy's R&D establishment at the time uh, decided to do a test. But they did the test not on a ship in the ocean, but on dry land. And they demonstrated that the there there was no significant increase in accuracy. SIMS data showed there was a 3,000 percent increase in accuracy. So here you have a corporate explorer, an innovator within an organization who's getting crushed by the larger organization. And if you ask yourself, well, why would the Navy resist? Turns out the admirals and the captains weren't very excited about this idea, which as we look back, we kind of think, well, they should be excited. Why aren't they excited? Well, if you put yourselves in their shoes, here's why they weren't excited. The strategy of the Navy at the time with these bad guns, was the way you fought battles was you, clo- you crossed the Nelsonian T. The way you did is you closed with the enemy, you literally boarded the enemy ship, and you captured the enemy ship. And part of your incentives as a captain were oftentimes you got credit for capturing the ship. With this new approach, to gunnery which you would you would fight not close up but at a, a, a several thousand yards the the skill sets were completely different the skill sets in the old world were navigation the culture was a culture of bravery and courage and and doing what you're told the alignment in the congruence model the 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 the, the skills and capabilities the structures the processes the metrics and the culture of the old Navy were completely different from what it would take to fight in this new Navy. So the Navy and the Bureau of Ordnance, the R&D establishment, resisted this. At that point, Sims' career is over. He's challenged the senior managers and got nothing. It turns out that he takes all his data and he sends it to the then Assistant Secretary of the Navy a fellow named Teddy Roosevelt, who obviously became a president of the United States. Roosevelt was interested in guns, you know, and so he read the report and he looks at this and he says, 3,000% are you kidding me? And he brings Sims back from the South China Sea and he makes him the director of gunnery and then subsequently the head of the Bureau of Ordnance and they completely transformed the Navy. <clears throat> now, a little known fact is, uh, Elting Morrison. Was actually married to Sims's daughter, so this is this is why this is why he was able to write this story. It's a very nice story of inertia, a big successful organization resisting uh, new technology. It's also an example of a corporate entrepreneur persisting, being resilient, and ultimately convincing senior management. That story in the eighteen nineties. <clears throat> plays out today in the 2023 around the world. And Aiden, we could talk if you wanted, we could talk about some more current examples, but you tell me what would be most interesting.
0: Thank you for giving me that beautiful story. I I think what you said at the end is it still plays out all the time. So let's bring it into a modern day case. Like one of the things you learn is there's people in the organization, the corporate explorers, as you call them, who who are bringing ideas all the time, but it needs, corp- it needs leadership involvement also to bring it all the way to the top, like Teddy Roosevelt and Morrison identified. But I, let's bring it to the case of Microsoft, the one that you sent me. And thanks so much for sharing the case. I'm going to set you up with a great uh, little quote just to give context to our audience because some may have forgotten how dire straits that, that Microsoft was in. And we'll look through it through the eyes of Janice, understanding where you're going in the future and where you are today based on decisions made yesterday. So it starts as, as follows. On January 30th, 2014, Businessweek published an article titled Why You Don't Want to Be Microsoft's CEO. CEO at the time, Steve Ballmer had announced that he was stepping down and Microsoft was far removed from its glory days, apparently headed towards irre- irrelevance. Everybody thought that at the time. Although profitable, each of the company's three core divisions, Office, Windows, and server so- software, were under existential threat from the shift to mobile devices, cloud computing, and the rise of Google and Amazon. The Businessweek article described how Balmer took over in 2000. 93% of co- consumer computing devices ran on Windows at the time, but by 12- 2012, it had plummeted to only 19%. Yet 90% of the firm's headcount was still dedicated to Windows. Upsteads, the Microsoft veteran, Sachin Atella, 22 years in the company and a massive task lay ahead. He transformed the organization. Let's share how through the eyes of the leash model, but also through the idea of the softer part, the, the software, which is culture.
1: So let me say just preface this by say saying just a few words about culture, so we can we'll talk about the culture change at at uh, Microsoft, but we need a little background before we do that. So, if culture is a social control system and it operates through expectations, sort of norms, you know, people have you know agreements about this is the way good people behave, this is how you shouldn't behave. If you think about culture as Uh, a a social control system that operates through norms, then we know how to manage it. We know how to shape norms. We know how to shape patterns of behavior. So there are a number of ways that leaders can shape the norms, the culture in their organization. This is what we call the leash model. And let me go through it quickly, and then I'll show you how it operated at uh, Microsoft. The first is, if you come to work in an organization and you want to fit in, you don't want to screw up, you need to figure out, how should I behave? Is it okay to do this and not that? The way you do it, in <clears throat> one way you do it, is you watch your leaders and you listen to what they say. So the first lever for changing cultures is leader behavior, leader actions, what they say, more importantly, how they behave. The second letter, this is L-E-A-S-H. This is the leash model. The second lever is employee engagement. If you're going to, if you get involved in a change, if you, if you, people listen to you, if they take your advice, you feel psychological ownership. So what we see in uh, successful culture change efforts is there is inevitably there are ways to get employees involved, task forces, committees. Pulse checks, surveys, town halls, getting people and listening to people. So they feel, they feel that they have some ownership. That's the E. The third level, lever is the A, the aligned reward systems, but not money so much, but status recognition approval. If I'm in an organization and I want to know what's really important, I just, I look at who's getting promoted and I ask myself, what did they do to get promoted? Or if I see people who didn't get promoted, what are they doing that's not getting them promoted? So getting the the reward system, recognition, approval, sort of promotions. The fourth lever is the S, the symbols, signals, vivid illustrations. The The way I know something's important is if you show me, this is what the culture looks like, this is who we honor. So that's the fourth lever. And the fifth lever is the H. that's HR system alignment. That is how we recruit people, how we select people, how we train people, getting the HR systems aligned. So that's the leash model. So now let's go back to Nadella. Let's go back to 2014. Nadella, in February, is appointed CEO, and one of the first things he—he's—he's—he's he's, he's a 22-year veteran, as Aiden said. So it's not like he's coming in from the outside. So he—he he understands. Uh, Microsoft. He understands the threats. He understands the strengths. So one of the first things he says is to, in, a, in a speech is he said, our ability to transform Microsoft is our ability to transform our culture. The existing culture under Balmer and Gates was aggressive, individualistic. They had a performance system, <clears throat> which was stack ranking. So the bottom 10% got, eliminated every year. This created horrible political dynamics where leaders in order to protect their people would argue about why other people's, you know, it was a very political kind of environment. So the culture was you had to know the answer. God forbid you were asked a question by a senior leader and you didn't know the answer. So it it was a culture that had in some ways had made them successful. It was clearly not the culture they needed going forward. So Nadella and his chief people officer, Kathleen Hogan, uh, spent nine months basically doing town halls, focus groups, you know, listening to experts, getting advice from the people in the organization. What is it we have that we should keep? What is it we have that's getting in our way? And what is it that we don't have that we need to change? At the end of nine months, he got his top 180 people together and they decided on what the culture would look like. And they came up with this uh, overarching uh, uh, vision of a growth mindset. So growth mindset was going to be kind of the, 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 the uh, foundation for a culture of learning, not a culture of knowing, but a culture of learning. Then. Over the next three years, they drove this new culture into the organization. They trained 27,000 managers on how to implement the culture. They cascaded it into the organization. Let's go through the, the, the leash model. First of all, the leaders, not just Nadella, but all the leaders, were on the same page. They trained them how to talk about the new culture. They got people involved. They had pulse checks. They had surveys. They're constantly, To this day, they're constantly monitoring the culture. They got the reward system aligned. People who exhibited a growth mindset were people who would get promoted. In order to get promoted to a VP level in Microsoft today, there is a separate culture interview. If you do not, as an individual, if you do not embody the culture that they, they need at Microsoft, you will not be promoted. So they got the reward system aligned. They, they constantly communicated these sort of vivid illustrations about what the culture looks like. Every senior management meeting starts with a story about. Somebody in the organization who did something that demonstrated a growth mindset. Think, think about this. For five years now, every meeting, senior meeting, starts with a story about the culture. So they, they constantly use stories. And finally, they did a radical uh, change in their HR systems. They got rid of the stack ranking system. You're now rated on a much more collaborative basis. They train people how to do this. They change their, their selection processes to be much more inclusive. So they've had a remarkable change. And if you look at the stock price of uh, Microsoft, you can see that it, you know they're now a trillion dollar company. They've, it's a remarkable transformation. So it's a full organizational transformation driven, not entirely, but importantly by culture.
0: Let's move on to the Vita, another a brilliant case that you sent on to me, and I loved the story of the Vita, particularly because of the vision, mission, and core values, and how that ex- how it was shown that that was so important, both with the merger, but also turning around the fortune of the company as well. You start off with a quote from the CEO again, another guy who took over amidst a crisis, Kent Theory, and he said companies can be a formidable force for good in the world without sacrificing or ignoring their responsibility to shareholders. That's a difficult thing for many leaders, particularly coming from the old way of leading an organisation. It's sometimes seen as you're being soft on people by focusing on purpose and values and culture. Maybe you'll tell us about Davida.
1: So I've been an admirer of, uh, Davida for 15 years now. I have Kent come to class and talk to our students pretty much every year. So, so here's the background on Davida. It's again, it's a, it's an example of a leader in a company that is using culture for competitive advantage in, uh, I guess 20, 22 years ago, uh, DeVita was then called Total total Renal Systems. This is a kidney dialysis company. So for those of you who are certainly not from the U.S., the kidney dialysis in the U.S. is... uh, So first of all, kidney dialysis uh, uh, occurs when people have what's called end-stage renal disease. Your kidneys are failing. What that means is you need to go to a clinic three times a week uh, you're hooked up to a machine for three or four hours and, and the toxins in your blood are, are clean. This is a miserable business. Uh, it is a low margin, low wage business. The average employee in a kidney dialysis company in the center in the United States is a single mother with a high school or maybe a junior college degree. 70% of the revenues from uh, patients come from government support uh you you can't make any money from uh uh from the government you can lose money because if you're not completely compliant with all their re- regulations then they withhold payment so this is these clinics open often at seven six seven in the morning they're open till it's eight ten o'clock at night <clears throat> people are on their feet for you know eight hours ten hours a day so this is a <clears throat> About 15% of your patients every year will die. Uh, the patients who come are often very sick and depressed. This is a low margin, low wage depressing business. So if you go to DaVita, you see the opposite. It is a company, the, 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 uh, uh, one of the cases I wrote has a title which their CEO asked me to use called, We're a Community First, a Company Second. And he believes that, you know, you look at that and you say, well, that's that's kind of crazy. Why? But he has created a a culture and a community where people care for each other. And because they care for each other. Amazing things happen. So if if I were to ask you as a listener, if your doctor said to you, I'm in the U.S. at least, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to have to get dialysis. How would you choose a clinic? Well, here's what you would probably do. You know, first of all, you would go online and you would look at the kidney support groups and you'd listen to what they say about their experience with clinics. You might go and visit some clinics. Uh, You would certainly talk to your doctor. And here's what you would learn about DaVita. DaVita's uh, clinical outcomes are head and shoulders above the competition. They simply are better. By a significant margin, Warren Buffett, who uh, if you follow Warren Buffett, the great investor, his investment thesis is you invest in stable cash generating, well-managed businesses that have a moat that are protected. He owns 20 percent of DaVita. So he believes DaVita. Now, so what's their competitive advantage? There's no technological advantage. They all use the same, basically the same equipment. There's no, the only advantage is culture. And here's how it works. By creating a community, by creating a place where people genuinely care for each other, the patients pick that up. They are more likely when they come to, because the turnover is lower, they are more likely to see the same people. And when they see the people, the people are by and large, more cheerful than the competitors. If that's the case, patients are more likely to come regularly. They're more likely to stay on their medication. Their clinical outcomes go up. If their clinical outcomes go up, then people are more likely to come to the clinic. So there's this virtuous circle that, has, that they have created. And they've created it from the culture. And if we were to go through the leash model, you would see the same thing. Their leaders are constantly sort of signaling uh, the importance of, of caring for each other, taking care of each other. They constantly get people involved. They're constantly celebr They've got the, the reward systems are aligned. They're constantly celebrating people who live the DeVita values, and their HR systems are completely aligned. So it's a it's another example of, <clears throat> on the one hand, a turnaround. When Ken Theory took over that business, they were technically bankrupt. If if one creditor had called a loan when he took over, they would have had to to to, to close the company. And today, of course, they're they're a hugely successful company, and they're successful because of the culture.
0: It's a great case study. I, I'd love to dive into just a couple of elements that we didn't cover with the Microsoft case, particularly their choice of language to shape behavior i think i think that is so important about the language leaders use and theory went to a level beyond that he used words like village instead of company and teammates or citizens instead of employees or staff and it has an absolute impact on people on how they think because we think through language maybe you'll expand on that charles
1: yeah, you know, most people, I think most leaders, especially senior leaders who obviously have got lots of important things to do, you know, they look at this notion of language and they say, okay, that's, you know, interesting, but it's not very important. But I agree with you, Aiden. It is very important. So what at, at, if you were to look carefully at Davida, you would see that they have their own language and that their language, they do things like, you know, uh, at every meeting, they the leaders will say, what type of company is this new? Whose company is it ours? What can it be special? New are special. They have a saying called, we say we did. Whenever a leader, Kent Theory, for instance, or any other leader is in a town hall and they're asked the question then and they don't know the answer, then they're obligated to come back and provide the answer. So we say we did. You know, they talk about, the company as a village and the Kent theory talks about himself as the mayor. They talk about crossing the bridge, committing to, to, you know, so we could look at a long list of, of terms that, that uh, many people, when they look at them, they would say, well, that's kind of trivial, but it's not trivial at all. You know, and what, what Kent uh, observes is look, When we think about marketing and sending marketing messages, it's critical that our messages be perceived as authentic, that the words have credibility. And so what they've worked on at DaVita is they have this language, but they make sure that they live those words and those words mean something. So I agree with you, that that language is important. I mean, this is Microsoft, really. Microsoft is, you know, they've got this growth mindset thing that they constantly repeat, a learning organization, you know, so so words are important.
0: Let's bring it then to a different culture, uh, entirely different culture, and one that we both admire. Indeed, your wife is a, a scholar in Japanese culture and Japanese business as well, but I loved, absolutely loved the case of AGC that you sent me, formerly Asahi Glass, but they transform the mindset again and against another leader who faced an absolute crisis. And to put it in context, facing a Japanese manufacturing industry stuck in an efficiency rut, because many Japanese companies felt the way to compete was to be more incrementally better, uh, more efficiency, driving down the cost of production, driving them mistakes, etc. And for tight Taikuya, <laughs> I'll try and say his name. Shima san Shimomura-san. Shimomura-san. Yeah. For Shima san who came in as the leader there, he was facing years of economic growth and a general lack of vision for how to grow the company that had led many Japanese companies to focus on efficiency, something that they were always really good at. And this speaks to ambidexterity, but also to that idea of Janus. So they were not only using just one hand, but they were also just using one eye and focusing on the exploit part and not explore. So I'd love you to take us through this case.
1: As you say, Aiden, this is a story of ambidexterity, but it's also a part. an integral part of that is the, is the culture change uh, that he did. So just to back up a little bit. So in 2015, uh, Asahi Glass Company, as they were then known, uh, was the world's largest, and they still are the world's largest maker of architectural and uh, automotive class. Those are commodity businesses. The only growth in those businesses are GDP growth, no, no growth. And it turns out that the Chinese and other low cost competitors were coming in at the low end of the market. And so, <clears throat> Asahi Glass Company, big commodity company, <clears throat> great expertise, by the way, in uh, the chemistry of glass making and hard to manufacture uh, technologies. But essentially their their profits were uh, down. So Shimomura, their CEO, is appointed and he decides that they they need to transform the company from a commodity glass company into a material science company. And we could talk uh, if you were interested about how they did this, but essentially what they did was they they identified three areas where there were great potential growth opportunities that they could leverage their skills in technology, materials, and manufacturing into these areas. They were electronics, life sciences, and mobility. Three growth areas. So what shimomura san did in part structurally is he separated the core business from the growth businesses so he has a set of core businesses which are glass um, you know some of the the uh, the older businesses their role is cash generation not growth but cash generation and then he identifies these through three new areas and he designs a process which is basically ideation, incubation, scaling, to sort of take the skills and assets from the core area and explore into these new areas. And to do that, he needs to change the culture of the company. And he engages in a culture change effort, and again, at the risk of uh, overdoing it, we could go through the leash model and, you know, the sort of leader actions and the sort of employee involvement. He gets large numbers of middle and younger employees involved. He basically goes around the kind of the the, the, the higher middle level that resists change, like in the gunfire at sea example, that, that whose careers have been built on a different way of doing things. He goes around them. He gets these people involved. They come up with a new vision. Literally, they come. The, these these younger employees help craft the new vision for the company. They change the name of the company from Asahi Glass to AGC. And today, <coughs> uh, when I last checked a couple months ago, uh, they're thirty percent uh, of their profits today are coming from these three businesses these three new businesses even more interesting i think is some of the analysts that follow the company uh, are now talking about changing agc from a value stock to a growth stock so it's a remarkable and, and it's done within japan where people say you know you can't change let me, let me just, as a footnote, say we were just in Japan a couple of weeks ago. There are other Japanese companies that are doing a similar thing. There's a company called uh, uh, JR East. J- that's Japan rail- Railway East. This is a privatized part of the Japan rail network. You get you you you. It's hard to think of a more <clears throat> stodgy industry than a company that's running railway trains around Tokyo, but they have two big assets that they figure out how to leverage. They have <clears throat> 2.5 million customers a day come through their things, so they've got access to customers, and they have real estate. What they have done is moved into retail and very high-end shopping centers. Again, 30% of their revenue now comes from retail. They, they run a railway system, but they've leveraged assets and capabilities. There's a company called Ajinomoto, which many of you would know for MSG. It's a food company. They are really good at amino acid science. They have moved into, uh, life sciences. So again, it's a story of, it's a story of ambidexterity, but in doing this, it often requires leaders to really pay attention to the culture of their organizations. And as you know, Aiden, many leaders, especially senior leaders, get kind of focused on the hardware, the, the structures and the systems and the metrics, and they don't focus on the culture. And I think that's a mistake.
0: One of the things I really learned from studying all your work is the need for patience. This takes so much time. And I think that Shimomura-san had identified this as well, that he he met the resistance from managers that had built their careers on the way things used to be and that he had to kind of go around them. But he also had to get them on board because they just didn't want to be along for that long, relentless ride because it it takes a, a lot, a lot of time. And I wanted to say that because one of the things you've seen and we all see is that many times a leader will come in and try to look for the shortcut. And I was writing about this recently. It, it's like in American football, when you've only a few minutes left on the clock and you throw the Hail Mary pass instead of building the score. Because building the score, you don't, and, and oftentimes that's the problem, because they have neglected exploration in the previous years, they feel they have to throw the Hail Mary pass. Perhaps you have some thoughts on that, Charles.
1: This is true of AGC, but it's true, I think, of, of uh... All organizations that are going to try to explore and exploit, you know, to go all the way back to the Navy, maybe, you know, in the 1890s, the alignment that it takes to compete in the mature business, the skill sets of the individuals, their motivations, the metrics, the, the reward systems, the structures and the culture that it takes in a mature business are really around, as we said, kind of efficiency, Sort of reducing variance, compliance, short term—that's what makes you successful. And if you're not, if you don't have that alignment, then you're at risk. The competition will do it better. The alignment that it takes to compete in these explore businesses, especially where uh, you know the the product market fit isn't hasn't really been uh, solidified yet, is. Different. The skill sets of the people, the motivation of the people, the structures and the metrics are different and the culture needs to be different. So what this means is that at least initially, you really, if you're going to do this like AGC is doing it or like this JR East is doing it, if you're going to do that, you really need to have different different alignments. It's easy for us as academics to point out it is difficult to do because it requires leaders to actually think about and tolerate the tension that that creates you know one of the leaders let me finish with this one of the leaders that we interviewed early on uh, who was very who was very good actually at running ambidexterity and we were writing a case on him we were talking to him about what does it take as a leader to, to run these very different businesses. And he said the following. He said, he said it's like raising kids. He said, I, I've got two kids. He said, one's graduated from college. One is still in high school. They need completely different things. I talk to them about completely different things. I never let one think I love the other more. That is, if you're going to do this, you've got to be prepared to have different kids, but you have to be careful not to say, by the way, the core business where we're making money is more important than you guys over here, or to say the future's here and you're a bunch of dinosaurs. If you're going to make this work as a leader, you've got to be able to 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 do both. Beautiful, beautiful way to finish. I know you're under time pressure. It's
0: been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We're, we're looking forward to having you back with Michael to do a third part of this series as well. But for now, author of Winning Through Innovation and Leading Disrupt, amongst others, Charles O'Reilly, the third, thank you for joining us, Aidan, thank you. Our sponsor for this series is gate one gate one, our consulting service that work with some of the world's leading organisations to drive meaningful change. They have offices here in Dublin, in New York and in London, and you can find Gate1 at gate one